Welcome to the sixth edition of my series of podcasts. In this segment, segment, I want to provide a summary of the editing publishing of the Book of Smithville named Memories of Smithville, 1787-1950. Harry MacDonald, a veteran of World War II and a resident of the village of Smithville, reminded his nephew Doug Neckel that it was his aim to gather local history and publish a book to preserve some of our history so future generations would have something to remind them of what people had accomplished over the many years that they lived here. A number of ideas were proposed of how to preserve the history. One was that they build a miniature village consisting of the homes and businesses replicating the way they were during a certain time frame. But that endeavor proved too time-consuming and would involve many years of work. A committee composed of six citizens formed in 1996. The members were Clarence Rosal, 90 years, Royal Tiley, 74 years, Jack Pennell, 75 years, Harry MacDonald, 74 years, Jim Chase, 75 years, and Doug Neckel, whose age we won't reveal. And they decided to have meetings and record the history. Clarence Rosal was one of their chief historians. The first priority was to record who lived in the house, houses on the streets that made up the village up until the 1950s. After meeting, many meetings that were held over four or five years, where they recorded the history over a period of time, they were unsure what could come next. But Doug Nickel then interviewed Mr. Rosal again when he was in his 93rd year and about other facts and what his life was like when he was growing up here in the early 1900s. Doug Neckel then came to me, Ivan Carruthers, and wondered if I would help the committee in editing and publishing a book. This committee consisted of Doug Neckel, Jim Chase, with Jim Diamond and myself on board. We put together a plan to cover the information they deemed essential to be incorporated in the book. Many, many hours were spent in the registry office investigating the history of properties and the families that lived in the houses that were in the village limits after collecting the information and recording it on the computer for 13 years the book was finally published the committee decided that it would be appropriate to add a section where as many families that were occupants of the land and buildings in those years would be part of the book that final step involved talking and notifying as many of those families that we were aware of to be part of the final edition it was a struggle, and we are aware that we missed some along the way. We finally had to make the decision that the 270-page book needed to be published, so with the help of the West Lincoln Historical Society and Ontario Trillium Foundation, we were able to produce a book. I am particularly proud of the fact that with my limited computer skills, I was able to produce the material for Mary Ecker and her staff at Crothers Printing so they could print and bind a book. It was worth the time and energy put into it. All I can say, I am thankful to all who helped in reading and editing the many pages of each and every story. Just this past week, I engaged in a phone conversation with Marjorie Chase, wife of Jim Elwood Chase. She now resides in a senior's home in Elora, where she can be near her family. Marjorie is in good health and was asking about the village. Marjorie and Jim were great hosts for a number of committee meetings as we gathered information and recorded it for the book. 
At that time, they lived in Niagara Falls. Jim has since passed away, and I would like to pay tribute to him by sharing part of his life story. Jim was born in Smithville on May 9, 1921, where his father and mother resided on Brock Street. The Chase family then moved to the corner of South and Mill Street. He recalls his neighbors being Granny and Daddy Spencer, Fred Joyner, Mr. and Mrs. E.B. Acton and family, namely Harold, Norma, Doris, and Mildred. George and Fanny Hardman lived there too with their two sons, Edward and George Jr., and daughter Mabel. Jim also mentions his buddies who were great friends, Alec and Howard Shepard, Buck, Billy Edwards, Hank, Harry MacDonald, Royal, and Barry Tiley. Jim in his memoirs mentioned that the population of the village then was 500, and Dr. John Zumstein was a family doctor who lived in the home next to the commercial hotel. The Zumsteins had a room at the rear of their home that housed the public library at that time. Jim attended SS Number 12 Public School and Smithville High School. He did not complete high school and instead left to go to work for his father, who was operating a livestock feed business. Jim enjoyed playing ball and learned to skate on the creek and at the skating rink that was at the back of the Presbyterian Church and Camp property on St. Catherine Street. This ice rink was equipped with boards surrounding it. It also had lights, and in the summer, everyone played tennis there. In 1940, at the age of 19, he went to work on the railroad as a chef preparing meals for extra gangs that were building and repairing a railway track. These gangs lived in what they called boarding cars, and they moved all over Ontario. In August of 1942, Jim joined the service and was stationed in Vancouver before going overseas. In 1951, following his marriage to Marjorie Lonsberry, they resided in Niagara Falls and raised their family there. Jim then became a welder after taking the course at the Chicago Vocational Training School in Toronto, and then secured a job with provincial engineering in Niagara Falls. to this community as it was to all small communities that had passed through from Toronto to Buffalo. Train service started in 1895 when the track was completed. The first station was built the following year here in Smithville. A few years later, it was struck by lightning, destroying the building. It was rebuilt in 1903. The railroad was always well maintained, but there was several train wrecks over the years. One in particular occurred on Saturday, January 6, 1947, at the road crossing just before the station in Smithville. The two trains were westbound in the evening hours, and the second train crashed into the back of the first train that had slowed down, slowed down to go into the, onto the siding. Just before the crash, the two trainmen that were riding in the caboose, in those days this was the last car on all trains, they jumped as they were able to ascertain that it was going to crash. 
They survived, but a number of cars derailed and the caboose went up in flames. The hydro lines were down in the entire village of Smithville for a number of hours. The fire threatened the Buck Lumber Mill, but the village firemen were able to save the structure. A number of cars derailed that were carrying the coal and it took a few days to clean up the mess. The two trainmen were Edward Barlow and Arthur Leroy, both of Hamilton. In later years, Mr. and Mrs. Charlie Shurton were killed when their car was struck by a train at the level crossing on Station Street in the village. Later, Mr. Leslie Merritt was killed when his truck was struck by a train at the level crossing on South Grimsby Road 5. Mr. Clifford Field was a passenger and who survived that crash. In years of the late 20s and 30s, a polio epidemic struck this community and a number of local citizens were affected and crippled for life. Albert Hunter was seriously crippled at the age of 27, leaving him paralyzed below the waist and his arms and hands. A local tinsmith made Albert a galvanized steel tank big enough for him to float in to encourage the return of his muscle functions. Over the long term, he was able to use his arms and hands back with which enabled him to work in his shop in the small room at the side of his home. His paralysis left him in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. The community was very supportive to the families who were affected by this polio outbreak. One resident particular was James Hiscott, who operated a machine shop. He built a wheelchair for Albert out of bicycle parts and Albert was able to hand crank the chair to move about. James also made a lifting device that enabled his wife Irene to get him in and out of bed every day. Before being crippled, Albert was an avid outdoorsman, always fishing, hunting, and making fishing equipment. He also loved carpentry and built a few boats that were seen going up and down the 20-mile creek. His friends took him fishing in the northern lakes over the years. Albert took up carving and woodworking and became very adept at producing beautiful gun stocks, and he had customers come from far and wide for something that was unique and produced by his hands. I am proud of the fact that I was able to visit Albert's shop and watch him at work. His workshop was a community meeting place at times, and many of his friends and neighbors spent time watching Albert at his work while carrying on conversations. Albert and Irene were proud parents of two sons, Larry and Terry, and one daughter, Sonia, Sonny. Other citizens who were crippled with polio at this time were Carson Johnson, Basil Lonsberry, Bert Pear, Emil Belcott, who was only nine months old, and others whose names escape my memory as of now. Carson Johnson lived a somewhat normal life here in the village, and he, too, was helped by James Hiscott, Jimmy, as we called him, but built Carson a motorized scooter that allowed him to get out and be mobile. I have a picture showing Carson on it, and it was very sophisticated piece of equipment for that era.
last segment of this podcast, I want to pay tribute to my great friend Joe Belcott and his wife Jessie. Over the years, Joe and Jesse were always present at various sports and community activities, and we had the opportunity to work together on many projects. Joe was one of five children in the family of Joseph and Eva Belcott, who lived most of their life in Gainesborough Township after immigrating to Canada in 1911. Emil, Mary, John, and Lillian were the other members of this family. Joe attended public school in Gamesboro and high school in Smithville. After Joe left school, he worked on his dad's farm before he attended trade school in Toronto, where he took a master mechanics course. In 1940, he joined the Air Force and advanced to the rank of corporal, serving in many, many areas of Canada as a mechanic, repairing and maintaining all types of aircraft. He spent many days at rescue sites of downed aircraft, and I was able to talk with Joe over the years of our friendship. He shared many stories about what work was like in the service. When Joe returned home, he worked at General Motors for a time, then in a lumberyard before forming a partnership with George Granger to purchase place millwork in Stony Creek, where they produced, produced very beautiful woodwork for offices and government buildings. I first met Joe when I started playing ball and our friendship began. Joe and I played on the senior men's team and won a championship in the OASA Intermediate C category. We went on to coach many young teams that won championships. After a limited amount of training, we both became umpires and spent many hours each season traveling to and nearby communities to call games. Joe was an organizer, and he spent much of his life organizing softball leagues, teams, and umpires, and also in hockey. He was an organizer and convener for many leagues. He was honored for his organizing in both softball and hockey by the Ontario Softball Association and the Ontario Minor Hockey Association. Before we had an arena, Joe and a committee built an outdoor ice pad and building for and, and a building for a change room where the tennis courts used to be at the community park. We had many a night flooding this pad and enjoyed games of hockey, broom ball and skating. Before the arena was built, Joe organized a minor hockey team in Smithville, then a league that included teams from Beamsville, Grimsby and other towns. The Smithville team played their games at the new Beamsville Arena, which was built prior to Smithville having their own. Joe was part of the committee that raised money and helped build our new arena here. Joe and I served for a number of years on the South Grimsby Recreation Committee, which was established by council at that time. The meetings were always held at Jesse and Joe's residence, and there was always a social event after. The list is endless of the organizations that Joe was part of. He was a great community worker. Joe was a charter member of the Smithland District Lions Club, which he served at all the offices in, of the organization. He was a very active member of the Canadian Legion Branch 393 and served in many capacities on the board. He was one of the first members and boosters of the Smithville Santa Claus Parade Committee and was honored in later years as an honorary parade marshal. He also served on the Chamber of Commerce. Jesse and Joe raised a family of one daughter, Cheryl, and two sons, Ron and Randy. 
Over the years, they operated businesses. Jesse was a hairdresser, and then they both operated a sports store and trophy shop. The many honors Joe received over his lifetime were well-deserved. He was West Lincoln Citizen of the Year in 1982, awarded the Commemorative Medal for the 125th anniversary of the Canadian Confederation in 1992, Community Sport Administration Award in 1993, Ontario Minor Hockey Association Honorarium Award in 1996, the Queen's Jubilee Medal in 2002, and in 2003, the Meritorious Service Medal from the Legion. And my final tribute to my great friend Joe is that we worked together in his shop to produce the wooden chickens that were a trademark for Poultry Fest the first year it started. We managed to produce 40 chickens with feet, all with a jigsaw, cutting them from a big 4 by 8 sheet. After Joe and I retired, our friendship grew, and I thanked Joe for his knowledge in woodworking that he passed on to me, and I was able to learn at my age. The print shop is closing now, as I prepare to make a few deliveries to our valued customers, such as Joe Collin Farm Equipment in Dunville and Ben Berg Farm Equipment in Waynefleet. And now I want to say good night. <laughs>